10 CDs for a penny. Show where he talked about mild music mags and culture and stuff. From Jackson, Maine. This episode, we're talking about Spin Magazine, April 2003. And it's a giant list issue. It's actually the ultimate list issue. This episode is really, really special for a number of reasons. One, it's going to be my first two-part episode because there was so much to talk about in this magazine. We went on for hours, and I'm splitting it in two. I got to talk with Noyan and Pablo about uh, all the lists. And in this episode, we get into Josh Homey and his favorite music, which is featured in this magazine. And because we started a conversation about Josh and Queens of the Stone Age, I couldn't resist calling my friend Sheila who'd been on a previous episode to talk about them as well because she's a gigantic Queens fan and I just couldn't leave her out of the conversation. But most importantly, there's a feature in this magazine on The Rapture, who are one of the great early 2000s bands. And somehow, I reached out to Luke Jenner, the lead singer and guitarist of that band, and he agreed to talk to me. These guys were one of my favorite bands and still are. And it was such an honor and a thrill to get to listen to Luke talk about this time in his career in 2003, which was a big year for him. When I was 21, I went to Montreal on a newspaper conference for my university. And I spent an entire day trying to find the Rapture's Mirror EP. This was back when there was no cell phones and there was barely Google. (laughs) I went to a record store, asked if they had it. They didn't. They said, try these guys. I wrote down the address. I went to that record store. They didn't have it. They said, try these guys. I suppose I could have asked to use their telephone, but I didn't. I just kept going on this journey. It was about 30 below. I spent all day traipsing around Montreal, but I finally got that AP. So join us as we talk about April 2003, but most importantly, coming up soon is an interview with Luke Jenner of The Rapture. If you go to uh, page 25 in the noise section, this was something that came up like in another podcast we did, and you immediately said, if you really want to cite the time and era that you're in, you just have to look at the celebrity couples. <laughs> this is, did I say I don't yeah, remember yeah. that? But it makes perfect oh. sense because... On number uh, page 25, we have the backstage pass, and we have the two couples here. We have Fab Morietti and Drew Barrymore, and Chris Martin and Gwyneth Paltrow. That's right. Wow. I kind of forgot about Fab and Drew, oh, to, to yeah. be honest. That's the one I really yeah. want to cite. I no, mean, that's and there's another time. section in this, the spin mag where there's a whole joke about Ben Affleck and Jennifer Lopez. <laughs> I know. It's like and just a like, few pages I totally later. I forgot that they were, were even together. Really? Like, oh, that was a big deal. I did not right, forget but that. But it's such a time capsule of that time. Like, in, I remember you couldn't, there were a couple things. So much of the culture is defined by the things you can't escape. Yeah. And I remember that couple was something was just like, it was everywhere. You couldn't avoid it. I know. He was in her music videos. He was in My Love Don't Cost a Thing. <laughs> <laughs> that just seems weird now. I know. It's so, eh? It seems so weird. They <laughs> they don't really make a lot of sense. I don't well, know. I don't know. Did him Is... and Jennifer Garner make a ton of sense? I don't know. I don't know. Him and anybody doesn't make any sense. <laughs> 
Okay, guys. Uh, if we turn to page 37 here, there's a, a feature on the Rapture. It's under the noise bands to watch. This was a pretty popular thing that Spin was doing uh, in the 2000s. Always had uh, a couple pages on the, the hot new bands to watch. This one's on the Rapture. The Rapture were one of my favorite bands of the early 2000s. I found them on the Rules of Attraction soundtrack when I watched this movie. And I'm tr I was actually trying to think how I would have probably got about finding it because I would have, I mean, obviously we had the internet, but I remember like that song must have stuck out so clearly to me watching that in the theater that I went home and was like Googling somehow like how to find that band. And I found it. It was the song Out of the Races and Onto the Tracks. And I just devoured that song. I, like it was. They only had singles at that point. So I remember downloading that and just like listening to the hell out of it. And it was at that moment when I was like, what else is out there like this? And, you know, then it started to discover uh, Yeah, Yeah, Yeahs and other Brooklyn bands. This band, I think, I think I might i can't remember exactly how i discovered them for myself i think it was really out of the um the era where there was lots of the bands you know like the yeah. white stripes the the hives the the strokes the vines the <laughs> vines the strokes like oh i'm just yeah, having yeah. like a little brain fart here but yeah all those bands and it's not like you know it's like hey if you like this band you'll like this band but mm -hmm. i think it kind of it kind of like right was right around that era and um, what I really liked about them is they're kind of like really crazy spastic guitars and vocals mm -hmm. that definitely kind of stood out to me, um, even like listening to them today. And, you know, House of Jealous Lovers still gets a lot of play on um, like Sirius XM stations, oh, right on. Um, which is pretty rad and still like holds up like really, really well. It's just you hear that, and then you're like, okay, I think I want to go listen to The Rapture now. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, and there's another song, Heaven, that I really liked back then, too. That that whole record was pretty good, but those kind of those two songs, I think, really stood out. I think they were singles, too. Yeah, yeah, for sure. But yeah, I really I really dug that band, and it, it honestly, like, once you actually heard them, they, they stood out quite a bit from those other the bands. You know, they didn't stand, yeah. sound like The Strokes or, or The White Stripes or anything like that. Those no. bands sounded great in their own way, but um, it was the almost unfair that they were lumped in together and you know only some of those bands were from New York City too so mm -hmm. um, yeah I, re I really dug that uh, that that was probably the most uh, impactful of, of their records for me yeah yeah what about you Pab? yeah I wasn't like as familiar with them at the time as you guys and I regret it because um it's funny because they're really danceable, but like not in a cheesy way. Mm -hmm. And it's it's kind of hard to pull off to be a legit band and make music that people can kind of like move to. And I remember trying to do stuff like this myself in the band that I was in at that time in 2003. And I kind of wish <laughs> like I'd listened <laughs> to these guys more because I'm like, oh, this is how you do it. Like, this is what it should sound like. Um uh, especially the opening track, uh, Olio. Mm -hmm. I was listening to that and I was like, oh, like very few bands have this where it's like, it's um, instantly singular. Like it's it's instantly like, oh, this doesn't sound like anybody. Yeah. Like anyone I know, which probably explains why you responded that way while watching, what, what's the movie? Rules of oh, Attraction, Rules of Attraction, right? yeah. Probably why you're responding that way. It's like, oh, there's this is just 
this something like this is, doesn't sound like anything else. So yeah. you have to track it down. Yeah, absolutely. And, and I mean, this was a uh, an era at this moment with uh, this sort of if you want to call it like art punk or dance punk. They think they started in '99, so they would have been developing this sound. They were. I feel like it's kind of mixing like a Public Image Limited type of thing. But they obviously have referenced this, that they were listening to like Chicago House, like 80s Chicago House and mixing that. So it was this really perfect marriage of like, you know, sort of abrasive punk and like house. So like this like whole like era of like danceable guitar music was so cool. And I mean, this this music, too, like it was it was it was indie and it was sort of abrasive, but it was really fun and it was kind of snotty. Like mm-hmm. so much fun, way. honestly. Yeah. Like listening to him play guitar, uh, it just makes me want to pick up a guitar and play in like this really kind of like perfect, but sloppy kind of like dirty way. Mm-hmm. Um, very intentional with your sounds um, and getting a really good tone too. So uh, the, the fusion of all the different sounds that you just mentioned is pretty amazing. That's what I was going to say. Like, it's really hard to to uh, to combine those types of things in one band, one act, yeah, one album. It's sure. really difficult. And I also feel like these guys were kind of the start of the entire Brooklyn generation. The, they were one of the first people to move there. These guys moved from California, essentially, moved to Brooklyn. After that, uh, everything kind of um, catapulted off of that, and this is also on like DFA Records, which was obviously LCD Sound System and many other things. So, like that was an amazing time, an amazing generation to be a part of in this early days of Brooklyn. And obviously, Brooklyn became this phenomenon, and you kind of never wanted to hear the word Brooklyn ever again by the late two thousands. But the music that was being produced out of there at the time was. Um, so beautiful. All those bands I just mentioned, like Yeah Yeah Yeahs, the Strokes. The Strokes weren't exactly Brooklyn, but uh... to move from LA to New York, honestly, I you never really hear that for a no. band. Like if you've moved anywhere, you you generally move to LA or to New York. You don't move from one to the other generally, right? Well, these guys were actually they were San Diego, and then they moved to Seattle because they apparently had some more music contacts there. And from there, they moved to Brooklyn. <laughs> uh, right. So they originally were on Sub Pop, which was, you know, another big deal. And then they went to Brooklyn and then did started working with DFA Records and then eventually uh, got a major label deal. And that's when they recorded Echoes, which would have been which came out in 2003, which is you no, know, we're in April of 2003 in this issue. Um, Echoes came out in September of 2003. And by the end of that year, that record came out in September. And by the end of the year, Pitchfork named it Album of the Year, actually. Which is pretty crazy. Yeah, I know. These guys had a hell of a year this year. Dude, it is impressive, though, like how you discovered them. Because in 2003, it would have been tricky, right? To, to, to just hear a song in a movie playing and then have to find it yeah. after is not easy, right? No, that's absolutely true. And... I think back, like when I started looking into them, when I found that song, then I found House of Jealous Lovers, which was essentially their first single. And that had been like this club hit in the UK. And I didn't know about it. But then I found out about it and discovered that it had been like this really big underground hit for these guys. And that's, again, what kind of led them on the fast track to going to like Sub Pop and then 
DFA and then eventually making like a major label record. It was it was pretty fast for them. They had a really amazing like two years into this. Do you remember the movie scene in the like in Rules of Attraction? Do you remember what part of the movie it was when you heard the song? One hundred percent, because it's one of my favorite movies. So there's it's actually <laughs> it's amazing setup for this song. To be to have a song this good and have as perfect a setup into a film was just such a gift for this band and listeners. It's essentially the first shot is there. Uh, it's early in the movie. They're going to a party and all of a sudden it just cuts from one scene to a party and it's a giant burning man. Like, you know, like essentially like burning man, but they're having a party okay. and it's okay. all in reverse. So you're hearing the song in reverse and the burning man is already on fire and you see him it's declining the uh the flames are declining down until it's i mean it's in reverse and then the song as soon as that happens the song flips over seamlessly and goes starts going forward and then sets up the entire scene it's really amazing like the film wow. not to get into this film but i love this film i think it's an underrated yeah, movie I know. Uh, it's shot incredibly and that one scene leading up into this with the use of this out of the races and onto the tracks was so perfect it must have been why like it's so noticeable in this movie that I was like I have to find what that song was and it I guess maybe it plays uh, such an important part in the song it's kind of like a garden state you know and when the shins are in it you know like it's it's a pivotal moment like that yeah, yeah, that's a very that's a good comparison. Anyways, guys, this is a a really special opportunity, but I actually reached out to Luke Jenner from The Rapture and he agreed to speak with me uh for the podcast about this time in his career. So, uh without further ado, I'm going to throw to that interview right now. Hello. Hi Luke, can you hear me? Yeah, I got you. Okay, right on, man. What's uh, up? <laughs> not much, man. How you doing today? I'm good. Just like hang out with my family. Oh, that's wonderful. Yeah. Yeah, it's uh, American Thanksgiving there. God bless America. Yeah. I mean, certainly in these times, right? Well, yeah. I mean, I think we all need some help, but I think generally we need help. That's true. I need help in general. Yeah. Let me put it. So yeah. do I. <laughs> um, yeah, I don't know if you just want to launch right in. I've just got some questions for you, uh, you know, just about uh, like 2003 and this time. I don't know if you looked at the uh, the spin article I sent you. I was there. Okay, right on. <laughs> Do you remember that photo shoot? Um, I mean, there were so many photo shoots back. I mean, 2003 was like the busiest work year of my life. Yeah. So, like, okay. You know, I mean, we did like many photo shoots every week, including travel and interviews and stuff a lot of those people from that time will be like oh yeah i took pictures of you or saw you play this show or you know uh i met you back then and i'll just be like awesome cool <laughs> awesome. like i i was i'm pretty sure i was there okay <laughs> kind of like that thing uh that people the kind of cliche about the 60s like if you remember it you weren't there you probably didn't didn't happen or you oh know? yeah yeah i get to what you mean. i get what you mean but it was cool. I mean, 2003 was amazing. All my dreams were coming true. Um, all my current dreams up until that point, I didn't know how to dream bigger than that. That was a pretty big dream. So, 
Um, can I uh, can I read you a quote? I was Why not? <laughs> yeah, go ahead. I was just looking up live shows of you, and uh, when I looked up this one live show, the you know little uh, whatever you want to call it, like media outlet on YouTube, they just they they described the Rapture practically invented post goth electro disco house punk. Yeah, I mean there was this huge problem back in 2003, which was there was like the Strokes, mm-hmm. and, you know, that was really you could just be like, oh yeah. Lou Reed guys tour with Guided by Voices or what like it was very simple you know there was like the new rock right and then there was like people who worked at record stores and had a lot of records and you know we were like more friends with Animal Collective and people like that record dorks like Black Dice and Mm. so the whole point of that was like you know that that was it was a really 2003 was really interesting because it was like you know pitchfork was really a big deal now it's become something totally different but at the time it was like kind of exciting mm-hmm. and coachella was kind of exciting now it's become something totally different um there was all these emerging things like all i guess my generation was happening like meet me in the bathroom era stuff but it was like yeah you could like burn somebody a cd of something and that was exciting It'd be like cool like i'll just I used to buy all these VHS tapes of like live shows, like before YouTube, before you could just go on YouTube and watch like every live show ever. Mm-hmm. You had to like buy a $30 VHS of the Screamers. Oh, wow. You know, or whatever. Like, so, I had like a Screamers. Have you ever heard of that band? Yeah, I have. Like, you know, most people don't know who it is. They have a really good logo drawn by, I think it was like, it's Gary Panter drew, drew that logo. Do you know who Gary Panter is? I don't know. He was, he's like this legendary kind of punk artist guy. Okay. And he's friends with the guy who made The Simpsons. And they were all like super into Frank Zappa. Oh, right on. But yeah, it's just more record dork stuff. But yeah, I mean, like <laughs> my father is a PhD university professor, super nerd. Um, and he was just like, research is the most important thing and actually really enjoyable. So you should just get into that. So I took that pretty seriously. Oh, right on. Okay. But, uh, but yeah, so anyway, long to <laughs> finish the thought. Um, yeah, like no one knew how to define us. Like we just got the most horrendous. There was like disco punk and then indie disco and people would just like, I think we were one of the first bands that like old dudes would be like, wow, like you guys play everything in my record collection all at once. Oh, yeah. You know, so. Yeah, I mean, the White Stripes did a really good job of being like the Ramones or, you know, they just had two colors mm-hmm. like, you know, and they just made the same record over and over again with occasional hits. Mm-hmm. And then we made like 10 different records, every record, all in the same song or whatever. So, yeah, I mean, it's like super fun. People, journalists, um, I mean, generally, England doesn't have this sort of thing anymore. But at the time they had, they could just like name genres and then that made i don't know it's just like a really fun time i mean basically everybody who was creative record dork at that point just went off into dance music after us like all of our friends now sort of like run resonant advisor or dance music you know um but at the time i don't know i guess yeah i mean the whole the whole idea is like of of any explosion or anything is like you want to increase the thought so mm-hmm. the strokes and the white stripes went backwards and they 
solidified the old thoughts and we were trying to open new thoughts. Okay, right on. Yeah. Well, that kind of leads me to the next question was, I mean, like the music you guys were creating that you were just talking about, like say like 1999, it was vastly different from what was popular at the time. And then by like 2003, everybody I feel like caught up to you. But do you think that the Brooklyn sound at the time was influenced like greatly by the rapture? The Brooklyn sound at the time. Well, you got to understand that there was no Brooklyn sound at the time. I mean, when we got to the city, it was like the last, like, I remember the week I moved here, I saw Calvin Johnson walking down the street with John Spencer in front of Katz Deli. And I was like, Oh, cool. Like, and there was like no van, there was no vans in New York. There was no Brooklyn sound. Like the, you know, that was what made our generation so interesting. Like the last interesting thing that happened in New York was like disco, punk rock and hip hop. And then there was just like a really long time with like basically nothing. Mm-hmm. I mean, there was like Sonic Youth and Sonic Youth is cool, but yeah. like Sonic Youth like really came out of you know, the, the New York minimalists and, you know, Sonic Youth is a great band. Um, then you had the kind of, uh, there's a really great art documentary called the uh, beautiful losers. Have you ever seen that? Yeah. I have. And like, that was sort of the pre DFA thinkers, but it wasn't music. It was just like people making art and like, you know, uh, and then in the seventies you had Basquiat and Keith Haring and then, in the beautiful losers era you had like all these new artists and photographers and you know there's harmony corinne who is like i think super interesting like i used to just watch gomo every day and <laughs> don't look back the bob dylan movie that was like my template for the rapture but then oh, wow. so like yeah i mean <clears throat> you had all those thinkers and like chloe stegnia and all and that stuff and they were around like you would go out that was also the thing like people you don't realize at that time there was nothing like i had a party in the lower east side in 2000 2001 and you know Clice Vigny would come and you know uh those kind of characters uh people from the movie kids basically and like you know it was just like 10 people in a bar and then like DFA was just like another you know three people when you read about like there's a book that just came out about Krautrock called Electric Electric City or Electricity mm-hmm. and um it's an oral history of Krautrock and Krautrock is literally like five people yeah so New York at in you know, pre 2003 was like five, there wasn't anybody and there was no shows. And like, you know, you would go to like, we play a show with like, it'd be like gang, gang dance, uh, animal collective, us and like black dice. And there'd be like 35 people there. Right. And, and, you know, then like, they're just like, no, there, no one cared. And that was awesome. And that's really, um, something that is very unique to that time, which is, that I don't know if will ever happen again, where it's just like, you could go for years without anyone hearing about you. Like the other music documentary, I haven't watched it yet, but you know, like it just, things really, the way information was disseminated and the speed, it just took like a long time. Like the, the New York scene, quote unquote, was going on for years and years, but it was just like, you would just see someone walking down Avenue and say hi, and they'd be like, hand you a flyer. And there was no like, there <laughs> There was no Instagram or Ableton or easy way to everything was hard. Things yeah. were hard and took a long time. <laughs> 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 when you moved to Brooklyn, I assumed that 
yeah, there wasn't really much going on then because everything sort of came after you guys, I feel. And the bands that you just referenced, yeah, they were all there, but then it kind of exploded all after that. And by the time that Echoes came out in 2003, like I feel like that's when people really started discovering Brooklyn and what was going on, but it had been going on for how many years before that? Yeah, well, I mean, you know, our our uh, sort of art, like Black Dice are just art school kids. You know, they were literally painters. Like the original bass player of Black Dice quit to have an art career because he was like, you guys are never going to do anything, you know? And, <laughs> um, and they were mad at us for being into dance music. They were like, dance music kind of sucks, man. Like, it's not really, you should listen to Caetano Veloso or like this, you know, noise record or this, you know, you should be into you know, White House or like just, you know, some sort of, uh, or there was this record, there was this uh, magazine called Banana Fish and it just, I was like a noise magazine. But anyway, yeah, I mean, it's just record store stuff and record store dorks like just did not like dance music, which for me, that was my Melvins moment. Mm -hmm. Like the Melvins were brilliant um, in the 80s West Coast because during the time when everyone played punk rock really fast, they were, they were like, we're going to play slower than Black Sabbath. Yeah. you know, which just ended up in like being sleep or whatever, but mm-hmm. you know, and, and they just would make people mad and they, it would be like, they would play with three really fast bands and then they would play super slow, but they were friends with everyone. That was kind of like us. We were like, we were into post-punk and you know, like uh, it was a really easy intellectual exercise to be, to figure out that metal box by public image limited was influenced by dub and just go and like getting into like jaw wobble no one played like jaw wobble and you know it was a very or just it was easy like i was really into um scream adelica by primal scream and that record was just like all over the map and used andy weatherall and lots of kind of you know dance music producers and drugs and there's influenced by you know rave culture and that just never my record store friends were like that sucks and as soon as I figured out that they hated it, I was like, checkmate, like it, we're done. Like, and then, you know, LCD sound system essentially started uh, as to be our opening band. Cause James was our sound guy for two or three years and traveled around with us. And he was just like, you guys need an opening band. Like ha- playing with black dice doesn't really get the idea across, you know? And so you need someone that sounds like you. I mean, they, they eventually you know, James sounds like James now, but at the time, you know, he was like, all right, like you guys need an opening band. So yeah, I mean, pre 2003, there was like nothing happening. Right, right. <laughs> and what was it like being on DFA at the time? DFA was an empty office um, with a mattress on the floor, one desk. <laughs> uh, there was, it was in a very fancy building on West 13th street, with a very fancy studio on the bottom and a film production on the, on the it was like a four-story building mm-hmm. it was owned by our friend tyler brody who's just a multi-millionaire guy like that's the difference between new york like when i grew up in san diego and you grew up in san diego like if if there's some scuzzy dude at the show um who has holes in his shirt he's probably not worth millions of dollars you know <laughs> and who wants to drink beers with you after the show but in new york like you just have these you know people with a lot of money who just like want to hang out and finance films and travel around and get indie bands, give indie bands, you know, two years of unlimited studio time to make experimental music. (laughs) 
Yeah, I mean, he just wants to like hang out and have a good time. I mean, he made all these. He was at the same time he was making like you know movies that were winning Sundance awards and stuff like that. So I mean, yeah, I mean, there's just this. I mean, if someone gave you fifty million dollars and just said, you know, and you just wanted to hang out and you're in your twenties, you might just finance some stuff. You know, it's like, all right, well, let's make some things. <laughs> so, um, and then kind of fast forward to Echoes actually coming out. And it got a lot of critical acclaim, and then it ultimately became Pitchfork's album of the year. Um, yeah. And then that year, you played like a lot of festivals, and you know, can all you, of them. Yeah. yeah. It, it seems like it. I looked up the the roster. You pretty much did the entire gamut of festivals. Um, yeah. But you wanted to talk about that time, uh, you know, uh, like playing those festivals, and just like after the release, and like all the great acclaim it got. At the time, we had finished that record so far ahead of time, and we didn't have a record deal. I mean, we were assigned a DFA, but there was so much major label interest that it was like people were offering us lots of money, and we were traveling and meeting people. And but yeah, I mean, we just went to every major festival. We're on the cover of a lot of magazines, did a lot of photo shoots, interviews, met, I don't know, like David Bowie called me and was just like, hey, you're awesome. Let's hang out and then like the cure was like hey the cure is my favorite band by the way but the cure was just like hey we're going on tour you should eat pizza with me every night for two months i mean it just went from like (laughs) being i was working at a bar literally um which was kind of a dream job for me and i remember one night i closed the bar and this guy felix the house cat which is like this like old school dj guy came in and he was there or so, I don't know, I was friends with the bar owner. And he, he was like, Hey kid, like I heard this like house of jealous lovers song you have. I just had come out like, or he had a promo copy of it or something. And he was just like, you're going to be super famous and make a lot of money. And I was like, sounds pretty good. Felix the house cat. <laughs> <laughs> you know what I mean? Like it was just a really heady, like also um, one of my, you know, the guys from Vice Magazine at the time who were another part of my generation in New York. Mm-hmm. Uh, they would all sit at the bar and do like tons of drugs and drink too much and yeah, that sounds say, say wild stuff like we're going to be we're going to make tons of money and take over the world. And I'd be like, cool, do more drugs, like have some more drink, just like <laughs> and they literally are multimillionaires and they took over the like they got bought by you know cnn or whatever and there's like a documentary about that there's documentary about everybody i know basically yeah new york's like this mythology machine and i was that's why i fell in love with it i read uh please kill me Mm -hmm. the book and i was like all right like this is a you know you can just turn it into like a myth Mm -hmm. like uh, you know and it's like jim hendrick jimmy hendrix and bob dylan were just these two guys with big hair who hung out in the lower east side and drank they just drink beers like everybody else and then now they're like myth myths and like you know james murphy's like morrissey now or like you know there's just people in that generation who i know personally who are i meet kids all the time now and that like they like if they were confronted with james murphy they would literally cry but i get it i mean like when i moved to new york like the most coolest guy around was like thurston moore and he would go to black dice shows or whatever he would just be around and i'd be like wow it's like black dice or you see like rick okasic from the cars or you know guys in suicide or just these different people there was like television was giving guitar lessons i never took one but i like i ripped off a number (laughs) really Um, yeah like so 
New York, but that's that's the great thing about New York is like, and it's also cyclical. Um, you know, like in the seventies, like William Burroughs and Andy Warhol were guys that you could just like see around, like they or Allen Ginsberg. Like if you were in New York in the eighties, like it was very easy to meet Allen Ginsberg. Like he'd just be around or whoever, and like you, you know, like my friend Justin Strauss, who's in this band Milk and Cookies, who's like kind of a legendary dude in his own right. Like he has, you know, paintings from Andy Warhol that Andy Warhol gave him or, you know, or all these different, he knew Larry Levon and he knew all these people. So it's just like, New York is, the promise of New York is just like, you just move here and then we just turn you into a myth. And <laughs> it's great. You know, that's, it works. Was there anything that like you hadn't expected would ever happen, happen at that time? I mean, I didn't expect any of it. I mean, like, you know, my goal before meeting DFA was, like, open for Fugazi on tour. Yeah. Because yeah, I went to go see Fugazi, Blonde Redhead, and Unwound in San Diego when I was, like, 21. Mm-hmm. And every cool person I knew from San Diego was there, like, all my favorite band leaders and scene people, cute girls, like, everybody was there. So, you know, but I really wanted to go to england like it just like i said i used to wake up every day and watch don't look back the bob dylan movie and and kind of uh i was just kind of into being an asshole really like just (laughs) a really young very hurt intelligent i was trying to like protect my sensitivity in a way but i didn't know how to do that yet Mm -hmm. yeah i mean i don't i didn't expect i expect anything man like you know i really wanted to be what i wanted to do is what I did, which was just be part of something kind of interesting that happened. Um, I once met the Tears for Fears manager. Mm-hmm. At some point, we got this a really a big management company. We had the biggest lawyer in the world. We were on the biggest record label, and it's just stupid. And I met the manager of Tears for Fears um, walking in the hallway out of my management office. It was U2. They managed U2 and PJ Harvey and us. And mm-hmm. I was walking out of in Midtown 50 something street, 54th street. And I was walking out and I met this guy and he stopped me and he's like, you're in the rapture. Right? I was like, yeah. He's like, you don't realize it, but right now is like really the funnest time to be in a band. It's like, once you get to arenas and, you know, making a lot of money and stuff, it's really boring and like nothing happens. It's totally uninspiring. And that was really true. Like, you know, I just, want to feel connected the thing that i like about music is uh the feeling of discovery and then connecting that discovery to other people who are also smart and energetic and want to are kind of altruistic you know like i think the general populace is not something that i was very excited about that's why i moved to new york like i I went to high school. It was, it sucked. <laughs> like, or it was cool. I was on the baseball team. I was super into baseball, but then I hated the dudes on the baseball team. Like I loved baseball, but they're kind of dicks. Like they're just into trying to like date rape their girlfriends. And like, just, I didn't like, I was just like, you guys are fucking jerks. Like you're, you're picking on people. They're just jocks, like knuckleheads, you know? And I loved them and I hated them. But anyway, I was like, I got to get away from you. So I don't know. My mom was like a art performance artist, like in the suburbs. Like she had me when she was super young, but she was just super weird art lady. And uh, I had a lot of art books in my house. I just wanted to connect. Like I wanted to feel safe. Like I wanted to 
I think it was real. I didn't know what I was seeking. I know what I'm seeking now and I know how to get it. And it's very intentional. I'm also 45, but like when I was 25, I really didn't know how to get what I wanted. I just read a lot of books and did everything that it said in those books. Like, you know, I read like every book about Nirvana and we got signed by the same guy signed Nirvana. We like made a deal with Sub Pop. Like we, you know, like I just met everybody. Like the first girl I live with is married to Dale Crover is like the drummer of the Melvins who played on the first Nirvana record. And like, I just was like really into doing stuff my heroes did so that, but not just to do it, but more to experience, to feel like, I mean, as a philosophy major, so I was trying to find some sort of peace or figure out what life was about. And that just seemed like the fastest way to do it, um, which kind of worked, but it really does end. Like, you know, if you're playing in arenas or you're, you know, playing Coachella for the fifth time or sixth time, which we did, it's sort of like, okay, like, so I've been here six times and you know or five times and it's just like so what (laughs) like there's a different set of celebrities here who fucking cares you know like or i don't know like so i think i don't know i'm a really weird kind of rock star like i don't really most people just like try super hard to like build up an image and then they protect the fuck out of the image they're just Uh like all right like this is my thing and you have to like bow down to it that just seems like a nightmare. <laughs> what was it like to go on tour with Daft Punk? Daft Punk, you know, there's like two French stoner dudes um, who are really sweet. I, my favorite memories of that tour is like going, they would set up an after party. Like Rockstar after parties are a really fucking weird thing <laughs> that I get into. But Daft Punk would set up an after party. And I remember standing in the middle of a dance floor with with daft punk or there's just two of them so me and them Mm -hmm. and it's their own dance that's their own after party and no one knows who they are (laughs) (laughs) because they're not wearing a helmet you know so it's like (laughs) just like having a conversation with them i don't know they're cool i mean daft punk is like amazing i mean we you know also that was kind of like the pyramid tour and that was like a big deal that was like pre get lucky so that was the height of their underground cachet mm-hmm. you know before they decided to become like a grammy winning mm-hmm. uh uber takeover mm-hmm. um yeah which is cool too i mean they just they just do what they want to do i think the kind of you know meeting daft punk hang out with david byrne a few years ago f- for a while uh the cure david bowie like these are just people that do whatever the fuck they want all the time and they don't really I mean, it's just a really interesting point to be in your career um, because you're sort of free. Like, you know, by then Daft Punk were already legends. Like they didn't really need to do anything. Mm -hmm. That's why they take so much time in between records and stuff, you know, Um, which is cool. I mean, I, I don't know. I mean, I found a lot of meeting celebrities to be kind of uninspiring. I mean, what I'm real, my thing I'm most proud of is like, having a successful marriage and being a father because that's the most thing that feels the best to me and the most like lasting thing like you know um people will be like oh are you proud of this are you proud of that i mean i'm just proud that i like myself like most celebrities i've met don't like themselves i think the real tragedy 
of art is that most artists don't enjoy their art as much as other people do. And that just sucks. That's fucking awful. And, you know, that's my, my job is to try to like change that. That's what I was looking for on Daft Punk tour, on Cure tour in 2003. I just wanted to like myself and I like really did not like myself. So if you don't like yourself and then you're suddenly doing a lot of photo shoots, interviews, tours, meeting famous people, like it just makes it worse. Like it just, it, it's like taking a wound and like infecting it. Mm-hmm. I understand. But is it something that you did want? Like, I mean, did you guys just think you were going to just play like cool indie clubs and it wasn't ever going to get as big as it did? Uh. I mean, I definitely wanted it, um, but I wanted it in kind of a joke way, mm-hmm. kind of, you know, Sex Pistols, great rock and roll swindle, like, haha, wouldn't it be funny if we signed a big record contract and traveled the world? Um, I think the scary part is when you realize it's not going to go away, that it's like not a joke and that it just gets bigger and bigger. And then the kind of... Uh, the danger of creating this mythology about yourself is people believe it and then you can't escape it. It's like, it's like, um, it's like going out and getting drunk and getting a really bad tattoo and then having everyone be like, this is an awesome tattoo. Like, let's only talk about your tattoo. <laughs> <laughs> you played on uh, David Letterman in 2003 and it was actually November 28th, 2003. So the anniversary of you playing on David Letterman is today. Oh, sweet. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. David Letterman went to San Diego State University. Um, Yeah, I don't know. I mean, yeah, that was weird. It was cool. Like, uh, my wife was there. The green room's really small. I didn't really know what a green room was before. Uh Then they were like, go in the green room. And it's like, what's a green room? (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> which is just like you know a, a dumb small room with like water in it and some plate of meats or something i don't know some crackers um and then they someone comes in and says okay guys you're on now and then you know you walk out and you're in front of like a televised studio audience and it's cold, it's cold in there like as that's you know as people talk about and uh yeah you like shake hands with david letterman and he holds your record and says you know now the rapture is playing and then jump around for a while last it goes super fast and then it's on youtube for inter- for eternity yeah uh i've got one more question for you luke yeah how often did someone yell at your shows more cowbell um quite a bit i mean you know we always wanted to know if we inspired that skit or not <laughs> uh, it's unclear it definitely we were cowbelling a lot before then and um people yeah people would just bring there was like a lot of it went like it got it went like really far so first people started bringing giant signs and then at some point like there was a whole rash of people that showed up with their own cowbells and they would like try to invade the stage with their own cowbell oh wow during the show that happened like a bunch of times and was super fucking funny for everyone else in the band except for gabe who's the guy who plays the cowbell and takes it like just takes himself super seriously in general okay and was just like really not stoked like i thought gabe was gonna murder a few of those you know cowbell stealing spotlight humans yeah 
Yeah. Well, Luke, thank you so much for uh, for letting me interview you and giving me your time. It was really amazing to talk to you. Yeah, you got it, dude. Have a killer day. Yeah, you too. Have a great Thanksgiving this weekend. Ciao, dude. So moving into like the uh, the meat and potatoes of this issue, we start to get into the lists, and this is something that uh, Spin used to do almost every issue, was they'd pick uh, you know a kind of a current cool you know, sort of pro- prolific artist at the time. And they'd ask them to, um, you know, talk about or list the albums that shaped their sound. This one by Josh Homme is got a, the most perfect list rundown. It's page 54. It, this could not be more perfect, like of describing everything that would be, if you just threw it in a pot and stirred it around, it would come out as Queens of the Stone Age. Um, right, I kind of just want to like run down the list. Sure. One, the number one is Jackson Brown running on empty. Um, the next one, you know, you can see that uh, Josh starts getting into punk, and so he's got a. I don't even know this. This is various artists. Eastern Front Volume Two. It's a live punk rock compilation. Um, then he gets into GBH, another punk band. Uh, City Baby attacked by Rats. Then he gets into Black Flag, My War. I think My War is one of the most important records ever. And then Nirvana, Bleach. And then Iggy Pop, Lust that for Life. That surprised me. Really? Yeah, a little bit. Only because, like, if you, I'm a Queens like obsessive. Okay. And uh, if you listen to like his, like his back to his interviews with Caius, he was very dismissive of grunge. Okay. Uh, so, which is what kind? I mean, he's dismissive mostly of the labeling, and he kind of considered a marketing scam. Is kind of how he talked about it. Okay. Well, I, mean, I mean, sonically though, I don't see a disconnection because early Nirvana is pretty heavy. Yeah. And and Bleach is recorded on the key of C, which is how Caius recorded. And there's some early Queens of Stone Age record also recorded in the same key. Okay. I think the funny thing is that Nirvana recorded that record in the key of C by accident because they kept retune, detuning their guitars. They were so high that they didn't know they were They're like C. They're like already in like drop D and they're like, okay, we gotta let's go detune. <laughs> okay, now we're in C. It's so true. And it's, and it's crazy. It's like one of the biggest bands ever recorded an album in the key of C by accident. Their first album. That's crazy. I mean, That'd you know, one question about grunge is that, like, I feel like grunge labels are really weird, right? But the flavor of grunge, I feel like it's weird calling bleach grunge when someone calls Nevermind grunge. Yeah, because they're they're kind of they're quite different, right? Like the song yep. style structure, like how heavy they are. Like, I don't know. I, yeah, that, that's always been weird to me. I don't really like how it's like a blanket statement just because of the era, really. And the and the city, I mean, like all these bands yeah, came the city, from yeah. one city. They just threw a label on it, but it was kind of their their word, and then it became so like bastardized in the in the media that it kind of just lost all focus. I want to ask you guys, what do you think like the defining grunge sound is? Like, what band would you say that's grunge? Yeah, it's too hard to say. Exactly. So, like, I mean, the, because think of all these artists, they're they're all sort of similar, but at the same time, quite different. You know, you've got yeah. Nirvana, Bleach, and then you've got 
uh, Allison Chain's facelift, and you've got uh, the bad same era, Bad Motorfinger. Like, like these are very different yeah. records, in my opinion. I think Pearl like Jam, yeah, so Pearl Jam's a very. But different you know record. what? <laughs> if you listen to early, early Queens, like mid Caius Queens, mm-hmm. I was listening to. I've been listening to it a lot recently, and like I can totally hear the grunge kind of like. I mean, grungish influence. Like it's very kind of like dark and heavy. Yeah. Uh, so actually, in retrospect, not super surprising. It's just compared to what Josh has said in the media, it surprised me a little bit. But still a good list. Okay, the next but, uh, one's really good too. Iggy Pop. Yeah, yeah. No, Pop but I want to say it as well, Pab. Like it's exactly what we're right. talking about. Like I mean, maybe he was dismissive of that label, and I think a lot of people were, and I think yeah, people who were involved with age. it were like they didn't like that word anymore. It made it meant nothing. It was just like this something you were just slapping on a t-shirt in 1993 but Which they love to do yeah of course so i can see why he was you know against that term, yeah but i agree like but oh, yeah I totally exactly agree. and like bleach is a very different record from than never mind so like i can see i mean a lot of queens is like very polished but i can see that that influence of just like that that grit of, of bleach in a lot of queens music Yep. Uh, yeah, Iggy Pop, Lust for Life. That fits in well with Josh Homme sound for sure. Did you read what he says? I found that part really interesting too, where he said that he listened to, he said, I heard Lust for Life and it actually made me quit Caius, which <laughs> I thought was really cool. Like, I love stories like that where, like, listening to an album or an artist really, like, blows your mind and really changes your chorus the course that you're on like the direction you're going really shifts just because an album has such an influence on you i know that's incredible. i love stories like that me too i mean i think we've all had that in our lives as well you know all of a sudden you hear one record and you're like yeah like <laughs> like i i can't go back to what i was listening to before like all of a sudden you discover yeah. that new thing you're like oh man like i've just been like you know going through the motions with this other genre that i've been like <laughs> <laughs> going on for like two years I remember. I find it funny true. sometimes, like um, how one song or one band or one album or whatever could make me feel so inspired to make music, and then another one out of nowhere, like, can make me literally want to quit. <laughs> yeah, it's so you know, good. isn't that such a weird thing? Are you saying I don't know you, if you guys we, ever feel like that? But are you saying it makes you want to quit because what you heard was so amazing that you just can't top it, or? because it was so terrible yeah it it it's it just makes me feel like the divide between what i'm doing and what they're doing is just so great that what's the point okay it, yeah it's so funny you say that because so we were jackson you you said you messaged us right about like what what bands since 2003 would we would consider influential right right and uh i was thinking of the killers hot bus and I didn't know that he had that Brandon Flowers had a similar experience listening to the Strokes first record where they had like a whole collection of songs. And then he's like, we heard, is this it? And uh, and he said, we basically abandoned everything we'd written up until that point because he was just like this album really changed, made me made him question everything he was doing, mm-hmm. basically. Yeah, absolutely. Which, again, I love stories like that. Yeah, me, too. Um, next one on Josh's list is Can Cannibalism, nineteen seventy eight. This makes a lot of sense to me in uh, yeah for for Josh Holmes' music. Just real cool progressive stuff. Really different things. Like for the seventies, listening to Can that was a very very different record. 
Yeah, and and you, so I started listening to it. I'm like, oh yeah, I could totally see the similarity. What Josh says is really interesting too, and I had uh, experiences like that, like this too, where he was like, he thought he, he goes, I thought I was making my own sound with early Queens, and he was like, and he goes, then I it dawned on me like, is anyone else? Maybe somebody else has made a similar sound. And he goes, then I discovered these guys. Oh, wow. Oh, it turns out somebody did something like me like 15 years earlier. You know what I mean? <laughs> I've had experiences like that where oh. you're thinking, oh, this is so original. And then there's some like obscure German band or something <laughs> like 20 years earlier. It's always an obscure German band. Every time. It's hard to invent invent new music, right? Like, yeah. You know, there's only so many chords. There's only like you can start mixing tones and stuff. And I don't know, like even like getting back on the strokes, like the strokes didn't invent anything, no, I agree. but they put it, they put it together in an amazing way at the right time. And it sounded fantastic. Yeah, no, you're absolutely right. They're like the apple. They're like the apple of music. <laughs> they, they took someone else's idea and perfected it at yeah. the right time. I remember saying, I will never wear like pants that fit. Like, why would I ever do that? I'm wearing baggy pants. And everybody was, my parents would be like, are you ever going to put on pants that fit? I was like, that's bullshit. That's for old people. I literally heard, <laughs> is this it? And like bought a pair of like skinny bootleg pants. Really? <laughs> I was like, fuck this. I'm not listening to no effects anymore. <laughs> wow. That's like, uh, you know, this is the first time I've heard about that album affecting someone's wardrobe. So like substantially. Yeah, I'm surprised. I thought you were going to say you went and bought a leather jacket or something. No, but I mean, like, when you look at those guys in terms of fashion, I think they really had a lot to do with that early era. Everybody was, like, just coming out of the 90s with, like, kind of sloppy-ish style. And, like, all of a sudden, these guys showed up in tight clothes. I didn't know anyone. I remember watching Train Spotting, and they all had tight pants on. I was like, what the fuck is wrong with these guys? Who's wearing tight pants? And yeah, but in Manchester, late '80s, or I think it takes place in Manchester. No, it's, in, it's, no, in, it's Scotland. in London. Scotland. It's in Edinburgh. Oh, it's Scotland. So obviously, it's the and other side of the world. Yeah, it's, like, <laughs> it's not. But it's I mean, not late Canada. '80s style and early '90s, like before. Yeah, I know. It was kind of like tight jeans. You know what I mean? Yeah. Uh, <laughs> next one is Bjork, homogenic. This makes a lot of sense too. Just just because Queens is a very different band. I felt like they were one of the most original guitar bands of all time. And like just that Josh Holm had this sort of taste really makes sense in his music. Like he's obviously not being Bjork, but you can tell like if he has the taste to listen to a Bjork record like this. Right, exactly. It's going to translate into his thinking and his songwriting. I, I really respected how diverse this list was, like including Bjork there, like yeah. that it was an influence. And yeah, and she's a genius. Too. Yeah, she is a genius. There's ab- yeah. if you want to talk about there's absolutely no one else like there's no one else like Bjork. I cannot yeah. believe the music she makes. I've seen her. She's twice her own. And, she's her own genre. Yeah, she's 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 completely on her own. Um, let's get to the good part. Come okay, on. let's get to the last one. <laughs> Ween Chocolate and Cheese. Which is probably my Whoa. top five favorite records of all time. Yeah. What? There's... You like Ween? Oh, my God. 
This makes so <laughs> much sense that he loves this record. Yeah, because again, it's like a um, artists that are kind of like following completely their own path. Yeah, like with not too much regard for what anyone else is doing. Yeah, absolutely. And these guys, every song on this record is different. Like, there's no flow to this record whatsoever. <laughs> yeah, it's incredible. It's so true. And so I just, yeah, I I can see Josh taking away that that type of songwriting as well. Just like, just do whatever the fuck you feel like. And I I I like I don't think like the average music listener that's not like super obsessed with music, I don't think they fully understand how much um, audacity and courage it takes to be that type of artist. Because yeah. if you understand the way the music industry works, it's extremely difficult to be able to carve out that type of like artistic space for yourself where you're like, we're only going to make the music we want to make with no regard for trends. Labels don't usually work that way. No, I mean, I think and they like... usually pressure artists to be like, no, 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 we need some consistency here in the sound. Yeah. Which I think Queens has, but they are just yeah. writing very different music. Well, I, I was referring more to Ween. Oh, yeah, sure. Collective. Ween just kind of survived by that they had a cult following. So I would say that, you know, Queens, I, I mean, I went to Queens shows. They never played massive venues. They never played arenas. Um, I feel like that Ween were playing probably almost the same size venues, but they just weren't on the radio. But I would, I've been to yeah. lots of Ween shows, and they play big spots. And maybe that's just Toronto because Toronto's a big market. And, uh, you know, like you can always like draw in a lot of people, like if they're fans and they'll probably come from kind of the outskirts and make the effort. But right. every time they came, they would play, you know, the bigger venues, the Cool House, the Sound Academy. I never saw Wayne at a small show. They'd have thousands of fans out every time. And they were like Radiohead. Oh. They they had no set list. They would just play whatever they wanted every night. Like it, I thought I that blows my mind, too, that a band... Yeah. As, that has as many different and kind of complicated songs as Ween does, and you can just make a set list every night, like Radiohead does, and be like, okay, this is what we're doing tonight, that you actually know every one of those songs. <laughs> that yeah. blows my mind. I love bands like that, too. Like, like Ween, too, to me, is like, in some respects, I feel like they're like an ideal band, or like, to me, that would be the ideal band, is like, I love bands that, like, a lot of people just have never heard of mm -hmm. and they, they don't really rely on press or media and they have some sort of following that you don't, it's almost mysterious. Sure. And no matter where they play, they've got, they've got like packed venues. You yeah, know what yeah. I mean? We know I feel like a fairly accessible band. I think people, as he says, I think they're Josh in his quote underrated. is like, they're <laughs> underrated. He says, but they have a casual arrogance and disrespect for genres. <laughs> I love that description. But it's perfect. That is the perfect description of them. But at the same time, all those genres that they like, they have like they like country, they like metal. Like these guys are like out like shredding guitars, doing different stuff. It's fun. <laughs> it's fun stuff to listen to. <laughs> like you can literally take any person who likes any style yeah. or any genre and just throw them at a ween show and they're gonna hang on to a couple songs. <laughs> <laughs> I think that's really cool. I think it's really great. And that's like, does anyone in Ween have a side project? Oh yeah, 
their side project. Yeah. 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 So they still feel the need to explore other sounds, <laughs> even though they're doing whatever the hell they want. Ween. Hundred yeah, genres true. are not enough. Yeah, it's yeah. true. But those guys were just these prolific songwriters. I mean, obviously. I, I know a lot about them, but they recorded so much material. Like they just sat and recorded and recorded and recorded and wrote and wrote and wrote. Like they have so much stuff that they had to choose from to put on records. And then, yeah, they would just do another side project with someone else as well. Like those guys were hard workers. They were massive fucking stoners, but they were hard workers. That's amazing. So, Sheila, I wanted to get your opinion on this because as I was talking to Noyan and Pablo about this, I immediately thought that I also needed to be talking to you about this because you're a huge Queens of the Stone Age fan. And I feel that you could comment very well on all of these artists because I think there's a lot of uh, artists or at least a couple in here that I think are probably in your like top five of all time kind of list. So I wanted to get your opinion on Josh's uh, music in my life here. Do you think this fits in really well with his with his music that he makes? Not at all. No? <laughs> no, I'm kidding. <laughs> um, uh, well, thank you for uh, involving me in this because you know how much I love Mr. Hame and Queens of the Stone Age. Yeah. Um, so, I mean, I knew about Jackson Brown if we were going to start right out of the gates. I mean, are we going to go through the list? Yeah, like, sure. Do you, what, why do you say you knew about Jackson Brown? What does that mean? Well, I mean, because I'm a bit obsessive, right? With Queens of the Stone Age and anything that, that uh, Josh Homme does. I okay. Mean, you saw my reaction when they came into the Puma store when we worked there. That's true. Um, <laughs> I think we were both running around with our heads cut off, just trying to make sure that they were happy with everything. Yeah, um, I sold Mark Lanigan some underwear. He, I was gonna say that was the Mark Lanigan <laughs> days. Like, didn't he? Yeah. He legit fell off the tour. Like that. The, that tour. The, was the next not? day, we yeah. went to the Toronto show, <laughs> and the next day when they went to Montreal, he quit. <laughs> wow, that yeah. is insane. I know. I mean, think about it though. He did. He did not look well that day. None of them did. They yeah. were in bad shape. <laughs> <laughs> I mean. I'm assuming, and I'm just going by age, that Josh, I mean, I'm older than Josh, um, not by much, but I'm assuming that, you know, I mean, he's saying here that, you know, it, it was a fixture with his old man, of course, it was his dad, mm -hmm. um, and it's about being on the road, so, I mean, it's a bit of a no-brainer, but it's, it still surprised me a little bit, but I guess I just look at, you know, somebody like Josh Hallmay from Queens of the Stone Age, like, he listened to everything from Iggy Pop, GBH, you know, the dance. I thought he was like pure punk rock guy. Mm -hmm. And so it was like, oh, okay, this is like super cool finding out, you know, his various likes. I feel like it's kind of a full circle type of thing probably where you're into something like that when you're young and then you evolve. You know, this is obviously something he's into when he's small and he's, you know, hanging out with his dad in a car and listening to Jackson sure. Brown. And then he gets into his teenage years and really discovers what he likes. But then it probably came back full circle when you really like kind of move past Black Flag and and things like that and come back to just like really basic songwriting, like how to write a great song, which we know that Josh knows how to do. So it just seems like an element that just would kind of fold into his songwriting. 
Yes, agreed wholeheartedly. Um, I also think that, and I mean, this is going to sound, I don't know, but I also think that, you know, when you're young starting out in a band, something like Black Flag or GBH or whatever, and I'm not going to say is easy to play, or am I? Okay. Um, not uh, just, oh, I can get in trouble. <laughs> so I better not say that. Let's just put it like... I'm not a G, I'm not a GBH fan, so mm-hmm. and and Black Flag I appreciated, but it's not something that I would throw on the like I would not I don't even have an album in this basement I don't have GBH I think I do have Black Flag, mm-hmm. but that's not something that I would throw on. Mm-hmm. Do you know what I mean? Right. You probably would have or yeah. still do. Mm-hmm. Do you? Uh, Black Flag for sure. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Um, GBH, not so much. And it's not something that I would search out to because Josh Homme that is influenced by it. Do you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Like it's not like, oh, hey, well, Homme likes it, so I better start listening to GBH. I don't care that much. I think this is all just teenage music. I mean, I see all the artists from this era; they were all into punk because it was the new dangerous thing. But they all progressed past it. Like people who grew up on this in the '80s were done with it and had moved on to make very different things in the 90s um well to your point where you didn't want to say like this is easy to play but i feel like this was just more accessible music to play and okay. i've and i've brought sure, this up a, a lot of it. times where you know there was a lot of people who you know thought they couldn't start a band because they thought being in a band was being led zeppelin or being Jimi hendrix and then when right. punk happened they all of a sudden realized oh, I can start a band. You don't have to be this guitar virtuoso right. to just write songs and have fun and make music. So I see that, you know, by the time it got to Black Flag, I think Black Flag is a very accomplished band and Greg Ginn is like, you know, an awesome guitar player and, and very practiced, but it's, again, like very accessible music to learn on and then progress past. And then you see like this list as he goes on. Then he goes into Nirvana uh, which again, I think you know, Kurt's an excellent guitar player and songwriter. And then we get to Iggy Pop. Now he obviously, if this is going chronologically, he obviously discovered Iggy Pop early '90s or mid '90s when he says that he actually heard "Lust for Life" and then he quit Caius. <laughs> I know that's amazing, actually. Yeah. Um, and goes to show you how he must have just been losing his shit when it was um. You know, when he just did the the latest album with Iggy Pop, when he was on tour with them. I just kept saying, it's like, when that all went down, I kept thinking he's got to be the happiest man in the world right now. Like, talk about coming full circle. Like, Jesus Christ. Yeah, Um, I I actually wanted to say that, too. That's absolutely right. That he, this is 2003. He's mentioning that Iggy Pop completely changed his life. He quit the band he was in. He was like, no, I've got to, I'm moving on. Like, it just was like this epiphany for him. And somehow, throughout his career, he ends up making a whole right? record with Iggy Pop. <laughs> right? And then, like, touring with them. Uh-huh. Like, he must have just been, you know, every night. I mean, and I know for a fact, I think I saw some interview with him. and he just, I think he received a phone call from Iggy. Like, Iggy called him. And I don't know if it was the producers that got them together. If it was, somebody said maybe Mark Ronson. I don't know what the scenario was. But I, it was basically, like, he got a phone call and just lost his goddamn mind. Oh my I mean, God. that's that's a pretty good that's a pretty good life for sure. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, but then you see like the the last half of this list where he goes into it's Can, then Bjork, and then Ween. And, I know. And so like, that makes 
complete sense to me too where he's really gotten those three artists right there are three people who do exactly what they want i don't think there's a ton of bjork in his music because she's completely on her own but again just like when he references this is where i realized wow in the modern age of music you can have a 53 piece symphony someone playing a champagne glass and a guy playing a nose flute (laughs) that's awesome awesome (laughs) Like, seriously, so good. I'm just glad that he has some women on that list because I was starting to <laughs> go down the list and I was like, he doesn't have. And then I saw Bjork. I was like, okay. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> like, come on. Come on, ladies. Show yourselves. Yeah, so what was your overall impression of this list? Um, I Well, okay, so this list I, I enjoyed and I, I'd seen this before for sure. Um, but on... The other list, okay, so can I just talk about the my list for one second? Yeah, so you looked up another list while you were Yeah, well, I just looked up, because I, like, I was thinking, okay, we're going to be talking about this, and it's soundtrack of his life. So I literally put in soundtrack of his life to find the spin article that you sent me, and mm-hmm. then another article popped up, um, and it says, Josh Homme, the rocker loves music by everyone from Black flag to Britney Spears and then it says no really and I'm like okay what the fuck so um it's basically the same list except for okay so you know he goes the album that reminds me of growing up running on empty Jackson Brown Mm -hmm. the first artist I was um obsessed with as a kid Carl Perkins oh okay which is kind of cool I guess he was like eight years old and saw him at like some festival with his dad Mm -hmm. I'm surprised he didn't talk about the cramps. I'm surprised the cramps aren't on this fucking list. Yeah. Either, two, either one of the lists. Because they're so heavily influenced by the cramps. It's ridiculous. Mm-hmm. Um, Kenny Rogers. He's <laughs> a big Kenny Rogers fan, which I thought was really interesting. And then he said the music that reminds me of his first crush was Duran Duran, Tears for Fears, and The Cure. So he must have been dating <laughs> some, like, you know. Some new really romantic. Cute new wave girl. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um. And then the tour that, you know, changed him was opening for Ween. Oh, yeah. That's what he said. Um, he was 18, I think, when that happened. Oh, yeah, did, did he went on tour with uh, with Caius with them, right? Yeah. And, you know, oh, he goes yeah. on to say, you know, they're avant-garde and sensual and bizarre and aggressive and gentle and funny and romantic and honest all in one go. Um, <laughs> you know, sure. They're the peanut butter and I'm the chocolate, is what he was saying. <laughs> I know, I love that line. And then um, the unexpected artist that he loves, Jackson. Yeah. Britney Spears. And guess who we're going to talk about again? We're not. Spice Girls. Oh, the Spice Girls. I mean, I think I feel like that's like I feel like everybody says, "Oh yeah, I liked the Spice Girls. Like they were fun." Yeah, I mean, I, I mean, you can't not like them. To be honest, right. even at the time, okay, at when the Spice Girls were popular, I was sixteen. So it was like, well, here's a bunch of hot girls. <laughs> like, what, right, what exactly. else am I going to say? Uh, I'm not into pop music, <laughs> but here's a bunch of hot girls dancing around on much music. Yeah, I'll yes. keep watching these videos. Um, yes. But <laughs> <laughs> Britney Spears, no, I Wait, couldn't. Are you in trouble over saying that now? No, um, I mean, I, I, I'm, I'm being completely honest, and it's just coming from a place of, you of know, yeah, like really. Did. I mean, it, honestly, it's the exact did same I as really girls. Love Duran Duran's music, or did I just love their suits on that boat? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, you know. And then, um, do you know what he listens to before a gig? 
No. Like what he gets like pumped up to? No. ACDC, which ah. was, of course, he said he likes it because it's primitive. Uh, and he's, uh, there's a beauty in Bon Scott guiding your way through an evening. Um, he's also a big Motorhead fan. He said if he can't hear ACDC, he'll do Motorhead. Okay. Uh, and then That's great the music, music I want played at my funeral, uh-huh. 100 Days by Mark Flanagan. And I love that song. Wow. I know. I haven't that heard that in a like, long time. I, it just it just like hit me. I was like, oh my god, that's so good because it is such a it's just bone crushingly wonderful that song. Um, and I'm sure him and Mark Flanagan are tight again. Oh, I, I love it. I'm sure. I wonder if they were ever not tight. You know, Mark had I to think, just like. I think it was just a ma- and I feel like I've talked about this with him before too. And I think it was a scenario where it was really hard. It was just he's got to go. And yeah. that was the that was the only thing they could do. I mean, fuck. Could you imagine? Like all those bands that had so many problems with fucking heroin or drugs or whatnot, mm-hmm. it's just like, all right, you gotta go, man. You gotta go fucking do something and maybe you can come back. But in the meantime, I mean I tell you you know, I haven't I haven't met too many rock stars or anything like that, but I've, you know, certainly been around a music scene a long time and I've seen people who are like career musicians. That day that Queens of the Stone Age walked into the Puma store, I've never seen any band, anyone, as, like, career hungover as those guys were. Oh, dude, they were, like, like <laughs> it was they were, unreal. Okay, was that the same, is this the same time that we went, that we saw them at um, 102 Point, or when we went down to the radio station on Young Street? It was, was the same, same day. It was the same day. Okay, yeah. so, hold on. Okay, wait. So that night, where did they play that night? They played the Cool House. We went to the Cool House. Okay, but didn't you? Why am I getting this confused? Are you talk? Are you gonna else? tell the story where I gave my hoodie to that kid? Yes. Was yeah. that the same night? Yeah. Oh, okay. That was a tender night. And I, That's right. I always had this. I've thought about that from many times. Uh, we went to that show and. I think it was like November. So it, it was, was I remember it was nippy. It was cold. It was cold. Though, for sure. It was cold. And this it kid wasn't like, yeah. He had gotten cold. kicked yeah. out of the show before we'd even walked in. Like the opening act was on maybe. And this kid was outside and he was upset and kind of crying. So I asked him what was wrong and he said he'd gotten kicked out of the show and I didn't even ask him why. And we were like half drunk. We were like half in beers before the show. <laughs> so I was like, "Here, have my hoodie, dude." <laughs> and I could have <laughs> easily like found out this kid's information and probably gone in and maybe gotten a stage announcement like something could have happened to like find this kid's family that was in there and i was like here have my sweater peace out (laughs) you're gonna be out here for another two hours (laughs) (laughs) have a good one and then i walked into this show with with no hoodie That's right. That's right. I've just that been in a so t-shirt. Nice. I remember November. thinking that was so nice of you, though. I was like, oh, Jackson, that was, like, so tender. <laughs> oh, my God. I mean, that's pretty bad, too, getting kicked out before, you know, the yep. main band yep. is even on. What I mean. did that kid do? He was, I think he was, like, 14. I was like, what could yeah, you have possibly done? <laughs> I don't know. So, I mean, did we really, I mean, we didn't really talk about, you know. What? What were you guys talking about? 
when you were like, oh, I got to ask Sheila about Josh Homemate. What were you and your, your other two pals talking about? Pablo, who also commented on this with me uh, in this episode, he's uh, also a giant Queens of the Stone Age fan. So he okay. he kind of gave his insight. And, you know, he's a big, like, I don't know, Nirvana fan, that sort of thing as well. Um, so he, he, you know, he had a lot of insight. But then as I was doing, I was going, I got to get Sheila's insight on this too. Because you're just... I, I felt like I couldn't do this without you because you're such a big Queens fan. I needed just to to get your insight on on these influences and, you know, just Josh's music. Okay, good. All right. Got it. Now I, I, now I know how you got there, yeah. um, which I appreciate wholeheartedly. And, and honestly, it's funny. People always ask me, you know, what's your favorite Queens album? And, like, to date... I, I mean, I never I don't really have one. I mean, I think I got in trouble for always saying that I really liked Era Vulgaris. People were like, what? I'm like, I fucking love that album. <laughs> but like, Villains, I think is their, like, the last one that just came out. Mm-hmm. I, I was blown away, Jackson. Yeah. Like, blown away. And then I'm like, was that Mark Ronson? Like, who did that? Not saying that it's, you know, obviously not Queens, but, like, I was jaw-dropped at, like, how good that album was. I like Mark Ronson a lot. I think there's a lot of producers that are happening right now that I think are kind of hacks. They're like the the new generation of producers, and I think Mark Ronson does a great job with everything. Um, and I especially he did a he did a lot of work on a Black Lips record, and I remember okay. listening to that and going like, I mean, this was maybe like fourth record for them, and really hearing a difference like there's a lot of times when you're into bands and you like you you get in early and you're in a, like a debut record and you know you've you've gone through progression and by the time you get to like a fourth fifth record you're like eh, you know you start to kind of drop off and to hear a fourth record like that uh really blew me away and it was a lot to do with his production yeah i agree i agree wholeheartedly the mark ronson thing surprised me and i think he just he nailed it, like, and and I agree. I think he had a lot to do with the success of that album, and I, which goes to show you that Josh is just like, yeah, you know, fuck, show me what you got. Let's do this. I yeah, mean, for sure. He, he's not a guy to be like, oh no, this is I'm set my ways and this is what I'm doing. Um, I guess apparently he all also really liked the way he dressed, Mark <laughs> Ronson. <laughs> you like the way Mark Ronson dressed? Yeah, he was like, he just thought that Mark Ron- Ronson was just like an incredible, like, you know, stylish man. He was like, oh, yeah, he's cool. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> that, Which, that says a lot. Yeah, I liked it. Well, right. anyways, Sheila, thanks so much for coming back on and talking uh, Well, and oh, my God, Jackson, anytime. Like I said, I love talking to you, and I apologize. I don't think we really went through this list as we should have, but no. – um, to be honest, we yeah. didn't really go through the list as we should have with the other guys, so this was perfect. Well, that's true. I just that's wanted insight. It's it's always good to talk to you, and especially uh, about uh, an artist that you really love and you know a lot about. So thanks so much for uh, coming back on. Well, thank you for having me. All right, guys. Last but not least, we're gonna do this fast because we did a whole list issue, and like we're just topping off with another list. But <laughs> <laughs> who's number so one in the list. charts? April 4th, 2003. I'm just going to do the ones I know. I'm not even, I'm skipping over shit. I don't, I'm not, I'm not interested in stuff that I don't know. Okay. But this is again, like it's, I always love looking at this. This is a great portrait of uh, 2003. Number 16. I am beautiful. By Christina Aguilera. (laughs) 
2003. Wow, that feels like a really long time ago. Yeah, now. I know. <laughs> and then right, uh, right next to her, uh, very similar artist for the time, Cry Me a River. By Justin Timberlake. JT. That was a good song. I like that. Song. It was a good song. It was a good album. I liked him. Of like, oh my I was God. Re- guys, don't talk like that. I'm gonna tell you, Pab. <laughs> that was a good I was, track. Yeah, like so far beyond like hating pop music at this time. <laughs> <laughs> and, like I liked that record. I just for some wow. reason he was. It was just fun. I didn't own that record, but when you heard it, okay. we, I would definitely hear it at the That's dance cave or whatever the hell dance place I was at, playing it's the hives, and then they, they'd slide. You lost in. track of all the dance places you went to. Yeah, which was zero, pretty much, <laughs> unless they were <laughs> playing rock music. <laughs> but zero is a very high number. Yeah. <laughs> But so far, that's kind of what I would remember. Like 2003, yeah, still a lot of pop. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's always a lot of pop. Every time I look at these lists and think, you know, what I was listening to, and I look at these lists, that's why I'm skipping over so much. It's like, I have no clue who this is. I mean, okay, like (laughs) Missy Elliott's number 13 with Gossip Folks. Number 12 is Beautiful with, with Snoop Dogg featuring Pharrell and Uncle Charlie Wilson. Pharrell was already everywhere at this yeah, point, too. so he was just probably on every one of these tracks that we're listening to right now. He had some fingerprint on it. Number 11, yep. Canadian, I'm With You by Avril Lavigne. Oh, yeah, Avril Lavigne. Yeah, oh, yeah, Avril Lavigne. Remember, Remember her. Oh, yeah. She was, I mean, 2003 Avril Lavigne. Oh, my God, it was peak Avril Lavigne. That's her, that's her, her first record. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> uh, <laughs> yeah. Levine is so hot right now. Yeah, like. she's so hot right now. Okay. Now we're getting into uh, a specific era. Number seven is "When I'm Gone" by Three Doors Down. Oh yeah, <laughs> that's right. Remember I really Three Doors dislike Down? that band. Me too. They were in the exact same uh, wheelhouse as Lifehouse, which I also hated. <laughs> yep, yep. Really not. And default. And, yeah, yeah. Theory of a Nickelback default, yeah. You just know that Three Doors Down, they're somewhere, they're at a Trump rally right now somewhere. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, you just know. Number five is All I Have by Jennifer Lopez. <laughs> Again, like. Was Ben Affleck influenced by Ben Affleck? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> how about how about number four picture by kid rock featuring cheryl crow how did he oh, get yeah. cheryl crow on a forgot song? about that song i guess kid rock wasn't the bastard he was now actually at this time i kind of i didn't he like was always... i didn't like kid rock <laughs> but i liked him i thought he was just fun i didn't listen to his music or didn't give a shit but i was like all of a sudden this guy was this kind of this unapologetic skid but he was rich <laughs> <laughs> so he, he seemed entertaining in that respect like i didn't mind yeah i didn't mind him at all it's funny i actually when ba with the ba came out i i guess guilty pleasure i actually didn't mind that song when it came out but i, I, I really disliked everything I after into that song Ball to the ball to bang to bang. Ding, oh, ding, yeah, I, yeah. I, it's it's such a terrible song, but it didn't bother me. I remember it's called ball with the ball. Yeah, it's, it's not the yeah. Same there's 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 
in that Nothing song. redeeming about it. I don't really know. Number three is Miss You by Aaliyah. Number yeah, well, Aaliyah. I think there's some there's some legit like Aaliyah tracks. No, like. there's nothing wrong with Aaliyah. Um, number two, <laughs> He Who Should Not Be Named, Ignition by R. Kelly. <laughs> oh. <laughs> Wait, is he, oh wow. I, thought you, I thought the album name was called He Should, <laughs> he should Not Be Named. <laughs> it probably is. Which would have been very appropriate. Like, yeah, wow, that is a very timely album name. <laughs> just like, foreshadowing like, the future. Foreshadowing. Wow, that R. Kelly's really oh, astute with his uh, album naming. <laughs> his album name is I Will Be In Prison One Day <laughs> yeah. by R. Kelly. <laughs> what a, uh, I like urine what a by trash Kelly. human. Yeah. Uh okay. Number one, this is okay. So these are just tracks. These are number one singles, and I'm actually gonna name the number one album too, because I think Pab can guess both of these for sure. You think so? Yeah, Pab, number one single, April two thousand three, gigantic hip hop star, two thousand three. Oh, in the club. Yeah. He got it. In the club, 50 Cent. 50? Huge. Yeah. Just so, like, massive. Big song. Big guy. And I do like the song. Doesn't bother me, that song. That song was good. It's a gem. I I literally ran into him on the street in in Toronto. When? Uh, he He was filming Get Rich or Die Trying on Queen West or on Queen East when I lived there and I was walking down the street and it was a bunch of film trailers and I said out loud, is this the 50 Cent movie they're filming? I said that and the second I said that, he walked out of a trailer and I bumped into him. <laughs> and he was, no way. He was gigantic. Did he give wow. you a dirty look? No, no. I like It was a very slight tap and I said, excuse me and he was like, it's okay. Something, some, <laughs> some exchange okay. happened but I bumped into him. And this guy, it was like, it was like, it was like bumping into a, a car. <laughs> <laughs> I'm so sorry. I guess you have to be that big to survive uh, nine, nine shots. Yeah, I don't think they penetrated his skin. <laughs> <laughs> so that was number one track and number one record. Pab, what do you think it is? Huge band, two thousand three. New metalish. Era I think band. it's all right. I know. I think I know what it is. What do you think? Lincoln Park. Lincoln Park. Uh, Lincoln... Wait, what? Well, it's the first record. It's probably the second record. Meteora. Meteora. Is Meteora. That it? Yeah. Debuted. It debuted at number one. The album sold yeah. eight hundred ten thousand copies in the first week. Very huge. It ended up. Selling as it says as of 2014, it has sold 16 million copies worldwide. Wow, huge! And I huge, tried to especially look up, in 2003. That's huge. Well, so this is what I tried to look up, and I couldn't really find. But I read an article at the time, and this is the height of just stealing music. No one was paying for records. I was really surprised that these guys had that many records sold. But I'm pretty sure it was 2003 that there wasn't one artist. This was like in a in a in like fifth the first time in fifty years that an artist hadn't hit the million uh uh see like records sold and Lincoln Park was the closest one. They they hit um uh eight hundred thousand. So Crazy. in an era where no one was buying records, they were the top selling artist. 
Yep. I, no, they were big. They were really fucking big. <laughs> yeah. This is the album with Numb on it, with that gigantic song. Oh, yeah, that's right. Yep. Yeah. They were huge. And that's it, guys. That was the ultimate, ultimate list issue. I want to thank Luke Jenner again for coming on and speaking with me on the show. It was a real pleasure to have him on. Uh, guys, thanks so much for doing this with me. It was yeah. a real pleasure. Thanks and, for uh, inviting us. Yeah, you're really welcome. All right, guys. <laughs> have a good night. Bye-bye. Good night. When I roll 20 deep, it's 29's in the club Niggas heard I fuck with Dre, now they wanna show me love When you sell like Eminem and the O's, they wanna fuck But homie, ain't nothing changed, hold down, G's up I see exhibit in the cut, they nigga roll that weed up Roll that watch how I move, and mistake before I play up here Been hit with a few shells, but now I don't walk with a limp In the hood, in the lay, they sayin' 50, you hot They like me, I want them to love me like they love pop But I live in New York, and niggas should tell you I'm